Welcome to another episode of The Raven Narratives. I'm Tom Yoder. And I'm Sarah Severson, and we're the co-producers of The Raven Narratives. The story you're about to hear was told by Craig Paschal in June when the theme was broken. Craig grew up in a small town outside of Dallas, Texas. Among many other jobs, he's worked as a ditch digger, banker, assistant to a funeral home director, and as an English teacher and football coach in Meeker, Colorado. Somehow, he ended up a United Methodist minister. Here is Craig's story. Well, before I start here, uh, always before I speak, I kind of like to catch my breath and everything. So you can join me if you want to, but I'm just going to take a couple breaths here so I can get ready and then we'll get started here. (laughs) Well, life is... um, just a series of moments, and we've heard that word quite a bit tonight, moments. Uh, And these moments shape us and they form us. Uh, Most of us are old enough in this room that I can say 9-11, and you can go to that moment and recall it with vivid detail, where you were, who was with you, and it shapes us. And we have other moments as well. You can think about that moment maybe, or moments, when you fell in love. Maybe that first kiss, and you just wanna hold it forever, but we can't. And then we can remember that relationship that had such promise and, and hope at one time. And then those moments where you start to see that it's broken, it's not gonna work. Some of us can maybe remember the moments where you held a child, that you were part of that creation. And just the the hope, the dreams, and everything is possible with that child. And then as that child grows, we can maybe remember that time, the first time that they experience failure or pain. And it's a moment when we want to step in there and fix it, but we can't. It's just a another one of those moments. And for me, one of those moments was September the 18th in 2002. And I was living about uh, 300 miles north of here in a place, a little town called Meeker, Colorado, very similar uh, in many ways to Mancus where I live now. And I was an English teacher and a football coach at the time. And I was home from school, and I was getting uh, ready for practice, and I was kind of down on our, in a downstairs bedroom just kind of resting. And I heard the phone ring three or four times upstairs, and my mother was in town for the game on Friday night. And I could hear her talking, but I couldn't tell what the, the conversation was. And finally, after about the third or fourth call, uh, she came downstairs. And my mom said, Craig, she goes, I'm worried about Becky. Becky's my sister. I said, why is that? She said, her friends have been calling, and she didn't show up at work. I think, well, that's, that's my sister. <laughs> didn't think much of it, you know. She, she wasn't at work. And she said, and a couple of them called, and they lived together, my, my mother and my sister at the time. A couple of them called and said that the police were out at our house this morning. She goes, I think something happened. One of those moments. And you know how you can tell 
and that intuition, that feeling within you, but you deny it and you hope it's not true. So we went upstairs, another friend called and, and said the police were out at their house. And so I called the, the Jefferson County Sheriff Department in Denver, just, just outside of Denver there. And I said, hello, this is uh, Craig Paschal. And I said, uh, I'm Becky Darden's uh, brother. And I heard that the police were at her house. Can you, tell any, can you tell me anything? And the dispatcher said, no, I can't. But in that moment, she said, but we're investigating that case. And just that sick feeling. What happened? What kind of trouble did she get into? And I asked again, I said, I need to know if something's going on. I said, her, her daughter's at school. She's all by herself. We're four and a half hours away. We need to get there if something's going on. She said, I'm sorry. I can't tell you anything. And I persisted again. And in one of those moments that I always remember, the dispatcher said, I can't tell you anything, but let me give you the number of the morgue, and they can tell you. And I remember going to the back bedroom. I always kind of had this idea. I didn't know it at the time, but the shock was just instantaneous. It wasn't slow, didn't take its time, but just completely instantaneous, that heaviness where you can barely move. You don't feel like doing anything. You don't really want to live. You don't really want to die. It's just there. And I went to the back bedroom in our house and I said a, a short prayer. It was, God, help me. God, help me. And the next 16 months were difficult not wanting to get out of bed, not wanting to go to work. Nothing felt right, just there. And there'd be moments where I might see a little bit of light, a little bit of hope. But again, it was just this walking around with this heaviness and just have to go through it. Well, around 16 months from that phone call, uh, my family and I and uh, friends of my sister uh, we ended up at the Jefferson County Courthouse outside of uh, Denver. And we were there for the sentencing hearing uh, for Roosevelt Brackens. He's the man who murdered my sister. And they weren't strangers. They, they had been uh, having a, a seven-year affair. And he abused her uh, physically, emotionally, and spiritually. And when we walked into this courtroom, it was probably about twice this size. And there was a, an aisle right down the middle of the courtroom, about five to seven feet wide. And it split that courtroom in half in more ways than you can imagine. The prosecution was on the right side. The defense was on the left. My family and friends and my, uh, friends of my sister, we sat on the right. Roosevelt's family sat on the left. All the Anglos sat on the right side. All the African-Americans sat on the left. And that courtroom was divided by that aisle in so many ways. It was just quiet. 
And at this hearing, each side presents their, their stories about why their loved one, why their life is valuable. And we stood up one at a time, the prosecution first, and, and, and talked about why, why my sister's life was valuable and worthy. And we each spoke. And Roosevelt, I remember waiting for him to come into that courtroom. And I'd seen him from time to time, but not that much. And I always thought that he would maybe come in through the back where all of us did as well. But I remember before, before the trial got started, they, they opened up this door. It's almost like a secret door in the courtroom. And I could see down the hallway, but you couldn't see anyone coming. And then I could hear those footsteps. And I remember he emerged from that door, and it's terrifying. He had on that jail jumpsuit, and his hands were handcuffed. He had shackles on his feet. And it was painful to see him and terrifying. And I remember as, it, as we started talking about my, my sister, and he, had, he just had his head down, and he could never look up. And we had this slideshow that just kind of showed her life in two or three minutes from the time she was born up to the time that she died. And you could hear her voice on certain parts of this slideshow. And Roosevelt had his head down the whole time. And towards the end, he looked up, looked at a picture of her, and you could see the pain and the agony. And he dropped his head again. And we, when we got through finishing talking uh, about my sister and her life, Roosevelt's family, they stood up one by one as well. And they were talking about what a great friend he was, what a great brother, what a great father, what a great husband he was. And every single one of them said, we're sorry. But they couldn't say what they were sorry for. They couldn't name it. And I could just feel this hatred, this animosity boiling up in me. And the very last person that stood up was Roosevelt's father. And he was just across from me on the other side of that aisle. And he was a very frail, very old man. His hair had turned all gray. And he just shuffled to the center of that aisle. And I could tell he could hardly move. And he went up to this podium where everybody spoke. And it seemed like it just forever for him to get up there. And then he grabbed hold of that podium. And he just started to shake. And he was trying to speak, but the words wouldn't come. And you know those tears that aren't just light tears, but your whole body comes from the bowels up. And his whole body was just convulsing. And these tears were coming out. And it was a moment because I recognized something in him that I felt as well. It was that pain, that suffering, and he just sobbed. And finally he was able to say, I'm sorry. I don't know what went wrong. 
and he returned to his seat. And the judge read his sentence. And I realized that while I lost a sister, he was losing his son. And more than likely, he'll probably die in that cell. And after the judge read the sentence, there wasn't any laughter, any celebration. It was just sadness and sorrow, a tragedy that did not need to happen. And these two sides came together in the middle of that courtroom. And as I was walking toward that aisle, Mr. Brackens was walking opposite me on the other side. And I said, Mr. Brackens, Mr. Brackens. And he looked up at me, this frail man. And I could tell he was terrified. And we walked towards each other. And as we got close to one another, we just reached out our hands and we held each other. seemed like forever and we cried if I could have a moment to live again it would be that moment because the love that we shared was greater than our pain and then we released one another and I mean that in every sense of the word we released one another. And when I looked up, Mr. Brackens, most of his family was lined up behind him. And they all wanted to be held. Just what I wanted as well. And one by one, we held each other and shared that love. And on Sunday mornings, when I finish, I say, Amen, which simply means, so be it. And so I say, love is always greater than our pain. Love is greater than our suffering. So be it. Thank you. Thanks, Craig, so much for telling your story. To pitch your story for a future Raven Narratives event, fill out the contact form on our website at ravennarratives.org. And be sure to subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Stitcher, and share these stories with your friends. We want to say a great big thanks to our photographer, McCarson Tafoya of Red Scarf Shots. Please check out the beautiful portraits of our storytellers on the gallery page of the Raven Narratives website, and be sure to visit her website at redscarfshots.com. Our theme music was written, performed, and composed by Jazar. And you can find out more about his music on SoundCloud or at freemusicarchive.org. The Raven Narratives is a production of KSJD Radio in Cortez, Colorado. Find out more at ksjd.org.